what kind of cap rates are, are people looking at right now for <laughs> parks? If we're talking Class A mobile home parks on the I-5 quarter, that is like the creme de la creme there. And that's probably like four to five caps easy. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Invest in the West, where we talk about investing strategies and real estate-related topics in the western part of the United States. I'm Nicholas Cook, and I'm here with my co-host, Matt Williams. And our guest today is Alex Chang, Senior Associate with Colliers in Portland, Oregon, who focuses really on manufactured housing and mobile home parks. Uh, So today, Alex, thanks for being here with us. Um, Perhaps maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into real estate investing and brokerage. Sure. Uh, well, first off, thanks for having me, guys. Um, I'm honored to be here. Uh, I never thought I would be doing things like this. <laughs> Big like, leagues. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, I had my career in real estate start uh, within um, kind of, uh, as you termed it before, the, hard, the School of Hard Knocks uh, at PSU um, in the real estate finance program, uh, which now no longer exists. Uh, the MRED, but yeah. 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 Let's not get too technical here. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So I always knew I wanted to, uh, own real estate, uh, or investment property, um, as a means to grow wealth. Um, and always thought I was actually above brokerage, <laughs> but, <laughs> Um, you know, when I graduated, it wasn't the greatest time to be seeking a, a job in real estate, uh, particularly for a market like Portland, Oregon, uh, where there's not a lot of finance companies um, directly geared towards uh, real estate investment, um, and fell into brokerage uh, after doing various support roles for brokers. Uh, saw the opportunity within a, a multifamily team here at Collier's uh, and jumped at it. Um, how I got into mobile home parks was kind of interesting. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I kind of <laughs> had the same opinion as I did with brokerage, uh, thinking that uh, mobile home parks probably wasn't going to be uh, the route that I wanted to go to, but quickly saw the opportunity and um, saw it uh, dove head first. So. Nice. Well, Alex, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. I, I have a particular interest in it just because uh, yeah, I just think it's a fascinating product. As you know, I uh, own a mobile home park, closing on another one here next month. And Congrats. Uh, thank you. <laughs> uh, and you closed on one as yep. well here recently. So uh, we're two peas in a pod, I guess. <laughs> uh, two peas in a podcast. Very funny. Uh, at any rate, um, you know, it's a particular interest to me just because they're they're you can be so creative with them. You can change uh, the way that you manage it. They're really very flexible. So let's start by just kind of going over the structure from an investor's perspective and just kind of um, how they're designed and the flexibility of them. What, what do investors see in a manufactured housing community? Uh, so you have to elaborate on the flexibility. Well, I mean, like uh, sometimes you own this, you obviously own the space and the land. Yep. Uh, to some tenants, you're able to lease the space out. Yep. In, in other situations, you're able to um, lease out the house and the space. Yeah. Um, sometimes the tenants leave the property or want to sell the property to you as the owner. Yep. You can fix those up. You really have a lot of control over the community itself. And so, sure. um, you know, the difference between putting a, a manufactured house in there versus an RV, yep. those types of things. So tell me a little bit about uh, how investors are looking at the. Sure. The so, I mean, I think uh, what investors typically see with this asset class is um, it's a very consistent income stream. 
uh, for this particular property type. I mean, it's a, a subset of affordable housing. Um, and as we know, there's no shortage of demand for that, particularly here in the Northwest, uh, where we've experienced such uh, high population growth. Um, but as to the flexibility of this asset class, um, I mean, I think most of these guys see this as, um, at least within our marketplace, as, as a ground lease where the tenants do own their own homes. Uh, sure, as an owner or a landlord, you can uh, acquire more homes uh, from the tenants and rent them out at a higher rate. Uh, I think there's greater management responsibilities that come with that. Um, but generally what we're seeing actually, it's kind of funny, uh, most of the yes owners want to acquire the parks uh, with zero park-owned homes and just keep it as kind of an easy coupon clipper. Um, there is some flexibility and, I mean, as we kind of talked about before, um, there's the high watermark for rents within this product type hasn't really been established, I feel like. Uh, it's just kind of as high as the market can bear. Um, greater flexibility. Eh, I mean, you you do have some some options as a landlord. Uh, I'm, but I, I think in most cases I see them operating them just purely as uh, steady income streams and trying to have their tenants take ownership of their homes so that they can be responsible for all the maintenance responsibilities within the walls as well. Yeah, so just to be clear, I mean, uh, typically what's included in the space rent, are you seeing a majority of, of manufactured housing communities uh, being kind of an all-inclusive rent, or are they parsing that out? Are they sub-metering? Historically, it's probably been more gross rents, so your rents would include water, sewer, garbage in there. Um, but as ownership has become less fra fragmented and consolidated amongst uh, more sophisticated owners, uh, they're seeing the benefit of passing on those utility costs because, I mean, a lot of times those costs are uh, probably around 30% of your OPEX. Um, so that's a considerable cost, and especially with, um, particularly in Oregon now, uh, with the, the Senate Bill 608 capping your rents, um, utility costs can, I mean, I've seen some utility costs in uh, actually one particular case in Douglas County where uh, the garbage rates effectively doubled. So the cost of garbage went twofold. Um, I mean, <laughs> I think it's in your best interest as a landlord to pass through that cost uh, to the tenants. And I mean, it also helps them preserve uh, or conserve uh, their resources as well. So if you are responsible for those costs, you're going to conserve water um, or uh, be a little, think twice maybe about overfilling your garbage. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Well, who who are the owners currently and the investors? Because I've you know you and I were down at the conference a week or two ago, and um, you know over the years I've really seen kind of a change in who's at those conferences and what conference the, the owners is that? of the park. Just for the listener. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, we were down at the Manufactured Housing Communities of Oregon uh, conference in Eugene, um, and you know you look around and and the owners of the park are are uh, the demographic has changed a bit. Who used to own them? Who owns them now and who's looking at them from an investor perspective? Yeah. Uh, a lot, historically, I think within our market, the owners have been kind of ma and pa groups. Uh, and amongst those ma and pa groups, there are these family outfits that have amassed considerable portfolios over the years and through multiple generations. Um, 
and now I think within the last cycle, we're seeing a lot more uh, institutional, sophisticated investors coming into the space. There's still a lot of syndicators out there using friends and family money um, and high net worth individuals, but um, there is definitely uh, a greater interest amongst the uh, more sophisticated investor groups or what I would classify as institutional partners. Um, and we're seeing that with, uh, I mean, Carlyle just acquired their first purchase here within the state of Oregon as well. Um, they've come here into this marketplace in a big way. Uh, a lot of the existing REITs have had a presence, but um, just the Northwest is generally smaller assets. There is an interest here just because of the income and population growth that we're seeing. Um, so it's just asset sizes typically are a bit too small, which has probably uh, been towards the benefit of these private investor groups. Mm. And what, what kind of cap rates are, are people looking at right now for <laughs> parks? Uh, that's kind of all across the board. It depends on uh, what kind of quality type we're talking. If we're talking Class A mobile home parks on the I-5 quarter, that is like the creme de la creme there. And that's probably like four to five caps easy. Um, I mean, we're working on several right now where it's it's getting below us a four cap. Wow. Yeah. And I've got – there's two other guys on that thing. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's unbelievable. Um, so, you know, my background is all in real property, right? Yeah. Where you have, you know, the fixtures actually attached to the, to the land and, um, you know, traditional housing, um, stock apartments, houses, et cetera. Um, so I'm kind of curious, actually, what are some of the things investors look for when they're dealing with, you know, manufactured housing communities in terms of like infrastructure, um, due diligence? Like what, what are some of those things that you need to be looking at if you're, you know, thinking about getting into the space as a buyer or, you know, what are you advising your clients on? Sure. So on, on kind of the physical component side, uh, which you had highlighted, kind of infrastructure. So a lot of these communities are in uh, rural parts of the state, or um, and they typically are on well and septic for those particular communities. Um, if you're on city utilities, it's just a little bit easier to manage. Um, mm-hmm. There's daily testing, or not daily, but uh, required testing uh, if you're going to be servicing a community with well water um, as well as septic systems. I mean, there's a wide array of uh, (laughs) construction types for septic systems. I mean, we've worked on steel tanks, which we know erodes uh, over time. Uh, So those are, uh, I mean, the useful life for those systems is uh, (laughs) considerably shorter. Um, They've obviously now moved to concrete tanks and other uh, better forms. Um, So being aware of those components, uh, asphalt, seal coat, that kind of stuff, so roadways. Mm -hmm. Um, On the Moving beyond the, f- the physical aspect, I would say probably problem tenants um, are something to be aware of uh, in, uh, for any incoming buyer um, looking to move into the space. Um, so what kind of problems, I mean, I guess, that are you confronted with? Because like a lot of times everyone, you know, understands somebody not paying is obviously not great. Yeah. But, you know, in single family or multifamily where, you know, you own those physical assets, there's a lot of things in terms of conduct that you're concerned about within the walls because they're impacting the asset. So um, what sort of things would you look at and say, this is a bad tenant or somebody that, you know, we don't think is contributing to the park in the manner that we'd want them to? Yeah. Well, fortunately, uh, since compared to an apartment building, uh, a lot of these manufactured home tenants also have a yard 
Uh, so you can kind of get a sense of how well they upkeep the home based on the appearance of the yard as well. Okay. If there's a lot of cars outside and there's uh, a lot of clutter, uh, I mean, I've been through some parks where I've, I'm, I'm afraid to get out of my car. <laughs> hoarding, I imagine, potentially. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, one of the things that um, is interesting just in for people who are not familiar with this space is that you have control over the common areas and how they maintain the exterior of their home based on the park rules and everything inside the home obviously is, you know, kind of their business unless they have a, an American Eagle blanket hanging up for, as a curtain. You can technically put that in the park rules. But, you know, that's a very different concept for people who aren't in this space uh, in just maintaining the, the community. You know, you're nav- helping uh, navigate the relationships in the park and the exterior presence, right? No, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, as you touched on it, this is a community. Uh, and your job or your role as the owner is to make sure everyone plays by the rules so that it, it doesn't, um, uh, I mean, everyone plays nice with each other. Um, it's it's interesting to see some, some uh, rules and regs within uh, certain parks. I mean, I worked in a park in Eugene, Oregon, and uh, I think he put in his rules and regs that you couldn't paint the color orange for the beavers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was funny. Um, but uh, it worked for Eugene, so. Sure, yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. Definitely. So, I mean, on the due diligence side, like, what are you looking at, right? With with a property that's, you know, again, where my experience comes from, you're typically doing a physical inspection of the assets. Um, you know, you're looking at you know, the roof and the foundation and just general condition of the mechanical systems and stuff. Obviously, we're looking at lease agreements. So what kind of stuff are you, what's on your checklist for due diligence? Due diligence, I'd probably want to look at what the comparable parks in the area are charging for rents as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, I think you look at that with any investment property, right? Is uh, where's the market rent? Um, A lot of times with these kind of mom and pa owners, you'll find rents far below market um, and, or rents will be all over the board. Uh, Some owners will be at 700 uh, and some owners will be at 450 um, and that's comparable product. It's It's a huge gap. Yeah. doesn't make much sense. Um, Other things beyond that, um, look at the manager, on-site manager, how she handles um, what her responsibilities and roles are at the park. Um, that's kind of it. It's pretty, uh, yeah. Not, in, you're not, not the same in terms of looking at the same type of infrastructure beyond like obviously roads, utilities and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So which I guess kind of brings up the question, which is, you know, you're helping your clients navigate these transactions and, you know, you know, a good broker is worth their weight in gold. Bad broker is pretty useless. Um, so what are some of the things that you're navigating them through or helping them be aware of that they should, um, you know, be really concerned about, like if there's failing systems, abandoned homes, you know, obviously you have this whole thing with SB 608 now happening. Yeah. So like maybe you can talk a little bit about some of the red flags that you would, um, you know, kind of help your clients sure. uh, avoid. So the big one, uh, I think is probably the legislative changes that have occurred, uh, within the state of Oregon, obviously Senate bill 608, even prior to that Portland had their own kind of, uh, rent, limitation ordinance um so that affected parks as well um that is uh an area that we try to educate a lot of folks in just because a lot of these incoming investors are out of state uh mm-hmm. they hear the rent control many of them from california actually so they've got their own just version. put in their own rent control exactly yeah so uh you know it's um 
helping them, educating them on what, uh, how to, uh, how they operate within the space, uh, what not to do. I mean, I should start off by saying I'm not an attorney, uh, <laughs> but um, I advise them on the things I, I feel confident that I can. Um, as well as most of it is just kind of market knowledge. There's, there's no real database or co-star for uh, the mobile home park world uh, or manufactured housing I'm write world. that down and start a whole little thing here. <laughs> you could. There's an opportunity there. I'll help you. Excellent. Uh, <laughs> so, for instance, it's, it's funny. I was just giving a recent presentation to some um, uh, an affordable housing group, uh, and we put together we we tried to track the sales within the state of Oregon uh, and I found that CoStar probably had roughly a, a third of what I was looking for uh, the mm. rest of it I know I'm not 100% accurate either or 100% capturing the market but I feel confident that I'm at least doing three quarters of it um, this year alone I mean we're uh, we on pace to double uh, our average sale volume Wow. Um, so, yeah, and it's uh, come through in a big way as, um, I mean, a few of those are made up in just larger sales. Uh, so it kind of speaks to what we discussed earlier, the changing ownership of this particular asset class with more sophisticated or institutional buyers coming to this space. Um, they're, they're making a big, big splash. What are you seeing as far as the zoning goes? I mean, are these some of these parks going away because, you know, they're in some niche neighborhoods, the I-5 corridor, there's some really, you know, high-value dirt. And it doesn't seem to me that municipalities and counties are giving us any more space for this low-income asset yeah. class. So are you seeing some of these parks just go away? Short answer, yes. Um, they are... Uh I mean, a lot, some of these parks are, are pretty old, uh, so they've got some old infrastructure. We talked about steel tanks. I mean, some of these have Mossberg piping. I don't know if you guys know what that is, but it's like no. essentially like a fibrous, papers material. Is it like uh, asbestos? Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> is that another way of describing it? <laughs> yeah, that they use for sewage lines. But, I mean, over time in this great northwest, we've got a lot of trees here, uh, and these trees oh, will turn no. these pipes into Swiss cheese. Um, so... This a lot of those parks um, within that uh, time frame of when they were developed, or uh, I mean, are going to need to be um, retrofitted with n uh, new construction materials. Um, so ABS or um, what have you, um, as well as I mean, when you touched upon uh, kind of the redevelopment potential of these parks, um, just I think. Last month, there was a park in Springfield that um, was just rezoned for mixed-use development, the patrician, and, uh, and those 83 home sites there will uh, no longer be there, I think, in three to five years. Uh, I think it depends on what, where you do the redeve redevelopment. Like Oregon, or excuse me, Portland, had done a RMP zone change, uh, effectively maintaining all making it very difficult to redevelop any parks within the city of portland uh, i think it was like 55 or 57 parks within the city of portland that were rezoned uh, and it's 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 ticked some owners off for sure i mean you've effectively told them that you can't there's things you can't do with your own property now um and i think it's also led to some probably led to some greater sale volume within the state so hmm. 
And you've seen this market be strong just kind of in general in the West. I mean, do you follow what's going on in just, you know, Idaho or Washington, California, any of these other states? I mean, is this kind of a, a trend where you're seeing more interest? And Yes, um, there is definitely a trend. I, I speak towards kind of the greater Northwest. Um, I-5 corridor, uh, even Boise, and uh, I mean, I, did, I listened to the last podcast you guys did with uh, the gentleman from Boise, and that's a market that has been uh, on a lot of people's radars. Uh, there's a fair amount of our the owners or clients that we have currently actually that own parks out in Boise or in the Idaho area. Um, I think it's a state that still believes in property uh, or landlord rights, uh, so it certainly makes sense. And you've got some of that same growth that you're experiencing within kind of Seattle, Portland area. Mm. All right. Well, uh, Alex, again, I want to say thank you for joining us so far. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, and uh, then we'll be back to finish the discussion and talk about you know purchasing strategies and analysis of manufactured communities. So. Thanks for joining us. Sleep Sound Property Management is a full-service, professional management company serving the Portland metro and Vancouver area. We give our clients back their most valuable asset, time. By delegating your property management, you'll be able to focus on what you do best while minimizing your liability and maximizing your return. Learn how we can help at sleepsoundpm.com. And we're back with Alex Chang. Uh, we're discussing mobile home parks, manufacturing uh, housing communities, and uh, really just looking into uh, strategies and what that looks like from an investor perspective. How, how do banks look at the purchase of communities for, for lending purposes, Alex? Uh, so there's various lenders involved in this space. Uh, agencies is some of the... Um, best financing you can find out there uh, and appropriately they look at um, kind of the class A, B plus asset class uh, or uh, kind of the more what that means is uh, newer parks, well located uh, within maybe on the fringe of uh, high density urban metro areas um, and and uh, Majority multi-section homes, city services, uh, ass paved roads. Um, generally, banks are uh, not wanting park-owned homes. Uh, so what that is is, I mean, it's, it's as it's stated in the name, right? Uh, it's a home owned by the park. Uh, so we kind of talked before uh, park-owned rentals. Um, I think there used to be a stipulation that it was under ten. Agency didn't want. Uh, more than 10% of park-owned homes. I think that's changed a bit now. Um, but there's also community banks out there who understand the product type, who have been invested in this for quite some time that uh, are probably one of the go-to acquisition lenders for most folks. Um, and there's also new lenders that are uh, realizing the opportunity within manufactured housing uh, and the low, uh, historically low uh, default risk on these assets, um, particularly here in the Northwest. Uh, I think when you move out towards the Midwest, you're talking a much more higher vacancy, higher turnover, greater risk, but uh, it's a higher cap rate as well. So. Mm. so when they're looking at the ratio of the owned versus rented units, um, they see a negative in the landlord owning the asset or the actual home. 
Is that because there's more risk involved in relation to, you know, if they didn't properly manage it? Because obviously that increases cash flow, right? I mean, if yeah. you're if you're renting a space for six hundred versus a house for fifteen hundred, yeah. uh, that really increases your cash flow. It does. I think uh, to them, what they see is, I mean, so we talked about these kind of being uh, effectively a ground lease. If all the tenants own their own homes, they're responsible for everything within the walls, and your you as an owner, your responsibility is just for common areas, uh, and. Uh, generally making sure that the community uh, operates within your rules and regs. Um, I think the way they see it is if you take ownership of the homes uh, and you're renting it almost out like an apartment, you've got higher turnover um, and more management responsibility. A, a tenant, I mean, for the folks that own their own homes within the parks, uh, there's a pride of ownership there. They're, they're gonna take better care of their homes um, and make sure that there's better curb appeal, I would think, um, versus a tenant that's uh, living on, uh, uh, I mean, not really sure where he's gonna be in the next five years. Mm. Yeah, I mean, they, <clears throat> those tenants that rent just the space and they own the home, they stay there longer, right? Because they're not exactly. gonna- uh, most likely hook up their house and pull it out. So, um, you know, one of the things that I really like about uh, these communities is that it really is a community. You know, when we bought our park, we, we tore out seven homes, you know, five of those that were just abandoned or burned. Uh, it was really, in my opinion, abandoned by the prior owner. They just didn't monitor the community. They let uh, the wrong people live there. And in the last three years, we've been able to completely turn that around. We bought two brand new homes. We bought three homes and remodeled them. And the tenants love it. I mean, the people yeah. in the neighborhood love it. They come up to us and say, hey, you know, you've really modified this. Yeah. Um, and you can provide that, you know, just yeah. because it's low income housing doesn't mean it has to feel like a ghetto. So who are the tenants that are living in homes now? There's obviously a stigma to mobile home parks or manufactured sure. housing communities. How has that changed in, from a tenant perspective? You know, there's a lot of aging retirees, um, single story living uh, within this sense of community. I think appeals to them because you've got a community of your peers, uh, particularly within these senior and 55 plus parks. Um, I mean, those are typically the the nicer of the manufactured housing communities. I mean, they're highly amenitized. Some of them are gated. Um, and again, that um, community vibe that you, you get with being in um, a, like uh, having your neighbors going through the same issues as you, uh, or not issues, excuse me, but uh, going through the same life changes as you, uh, I think appeals to certain folks. Um, it certainly made me open up my eyes towards uh, when I become older, whether or not it's uh, a viable alternative. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. What kind of amenities are you seeing? I mean, you mentioned that some of these might be full of amenities. Like, what kind of amenities? mobile home parks have? Are you talking about like barbecue grill areas and swimming pools and dog parks and stuff? Or what are, what are we talking about? I mean, I've seen some with, uh, <laughs> there was one in California that had uh, kind of a rock climbing wall. That's definitely more, <laughs> Wow. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That's an A plus amenity. But I mean, historically what we've seen here uh, are clubhouses. So we're talking probably indoor pools, uh, heated pools uh, with accompanying spas, uh, no. maybe a sauna, club room, uh, library, billiards tables, that kind of thing, uh, entertainment room for folks to 
kind of do their movie night and yeah well, and, and, you know, we talked a little bit about the variance on how you manage parks, but really there's such a significant difference in like, you know, my little manufactured housing community with 20 spaces um, that might have, you know, I've got a playground and a dog park and a barbecue pit. But, you know, uh, at the conference, I met a gentleman who their retirement plan was buying a park. And I think it's called uh, Jackson Hot Springs Park down in Ashland. Mm. And it's a hot spring. So they have literally, you know, half of their units are RV. Yeah. Half of the units are manufactured houses. They have concerts there. They've The swimming pool is a hot spring. Yeah. I mean, that's like a wow. kind of like a retreat. Yeah. And, and uh, it looks really really cool but that that was their retirement plan you know which is an interesting strategy from an investment perspective right yeah so one of the things that you touched on a little bit earlier specifically with uh the city of portland but i imagine and i'm curious if this is something that you're seeing as a national trend but you know are cities and municipalities building more areas or zoning for more of these communities because obviously everyone's banging the drum of affordability so you know what what is government doing to help keep this asset class and this option um, for housing alive? Uh, you know, Portland's kind of an outlier in that, at least from what I'm seeing. Um, in terms of pushing away uh, development? No, I mean, trying to preserve oh. uh, existing parks. Uh, in terms of development, I mean, there's been, I think the last park in Oregon that was developed was in 2002. Um, so it's uh, <laughs> it's been a while. Yeah. Um, there's not there's not I'm not seeing much new supply of manufactured housing coming online within the space. No greenfield development, that's for sure. The only time I've seen um, more spaces being added to the market are through additional uh, or adjacent land sites for existing for park owners that have that luxury. Mm-hmm. Um, but most cases, it's it's non-existent. Hmm. And uh, kind of within that, I mean, when you're looking at a community, what sort of market indicators you know, do you use to gauge the success of a community? I mean, or the potential success for a community? Um, obviously, real estate's all about location, location, and I yeah. imagine this is probably a component of that. I mean, typically what these guys are looking for, what market rents out there, what are the employment drivers, uh, maybe what are healthcare, healthcare options, particularly within senior parks. It's like accessibility. Accessibility, healthcare. agreed, yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of them are the same things I think you would look for in, in most other investment properties. I don't think manufactured housing is too different. Yeah. So um, one of the things, too, that you've kind of talked about, there's a bit of a change of the guard. Um, you're getting a little bit you know, newer investors coming into the space, um, looking at these products a little bit differently. Um, so are you seeing new investors coming into the market and transition to like tiny homes more or getting into different, like introducing creativity into these communities that wasn't here before? Sure. I think um, park models, have, uh, they'll typically fit into an RV tag spot. Uh, so if you've got these older travel trailers, skinnier home sites that um, uh, are going to be vacating that site, um, there's a nice opportunity to fill that space in with a par- an efficient unit like a park model. Um, they're certainly dense, um, but we've seen that model work for a lot of people. Uh, it is a more uh, lower cost of how- form of housing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, uh, as we touched on before, there's there's no, um, there's, there's a lot of demand for that product. We spoke a little bit in the past here about how people acquire these 
properties, there are there are quite a few rules that don't really apply because the uh, tenants own the homes themselves. Um, when you sell a park, you have to give the uh, tenants there notice so that they have the option to collectively purchase the park, right? And there um, is an opportunity and a notice period there. Uh, that's not first right of refusal, but it's an opportunity to compete in the event that they want to purchase. So tell us a little bit about the difference in rules while transitioning and selling a park. Sure. Um, so there, uh, the only way to kind of circumvent providing notice to the tenants is actually if your purchaser is a 1031 purchaser. Uh, that's at least within the state of Oregon. Um, you're right. It's not a right of first refusal. Um, it's just basically allowing the option for the tenants to purchase. And a lot of times, I mean, they're they're working. Uh, those nonprofit tenant groups are working on trying to be more competitive with market terms. Uh, what we're seeing a lot of times is that uh, timing doesn't make sense. Historically, they haven't been competitive on pricing, but it seems like that's that's changed over the last cycle or over the last twelve months. Um, how that's changing or how that impacts me uh, selling a park. I mean, a lot of times some of these sellers, uh, again, they're, they're mom and pa type groups who have a relationship with their tenants and they'd rather not uh, rock the boat too much. So they prefer, if possible, not to give notice to their tenants, uh, what we find in most cases. But a lot of times if these sellers are looking to sell and they're looking to get out, it, it doesn't matter if the tenant buys it or an investor group buys it. So uh, giving notice is just a necessary hurdle that they need to go through. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the things I think that comes to mind just from a management perspective, because, you know, Nick and I have been in the management industry for years. Uh, and in looking at some of these parks, you can see that owners who supposedly care about the park and care about the cash flow aren't managing it properly. And then you look at the tenants and the way that they treat uh, their own property, you're thinking, okay, who's going to manage that asset if all of the group, all of the tenants form a group and then purchase the property? So my understanding, you can correct me if I'm wrong, the program where they're able to purchase it does not require them to, uh, for them to get a grant, they're not required to hire a professional property management company. Uh, I'm not sure on that, actually. Um, but I do know that third-party managers have been hired to manage the parks on historical uh, nonprofit acquisitions within the state. So I'm not sure about that, but I think the the tenant purchase route is, uh, I mean, we're referring to Casa of Oregon in this case, and mm -hmm. I think what they're trying to do is empower the tenants and uh, help the tenants realize that they can have control over their own futures. Uh, I mean, as we talked about before, a lot of these uh, manufactured home park tenants uh, have difficulties finding new housing if they've got aging structures um, if uh, that probably won't survive a move or uh, they're on fixed incomes that um, you know can't can uh, assume a greater um, increase in the rent costs. Um, so, yeah, that's um, it's not uh, you know. <laughs> Say it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's no. I think that's all I've got. So, well, uh, I mean, for those that, that don't know about the Casa program, essentially the way it works is you have a first lien holder. A bank gives a loan just like they would to an investor. Then you have a state fund, uh, a grant essentially that uh, makes up a shortfall, and then Casa comes in as kind of a second uh, lien holder, or a second mortgage, and um, 
it's at a lower interest rate. They loan up to, I think it's 110% of the value of the park. Uh, they loan for improvements that may need to be made. The interesting thing about that program that I didn't know uh, until just recently is that once the tenants purchase it, it can never be sold to anyone except for a nonprofit. I, that is new to me as well. Uh, I, I was I, not aware of that. It's uh, it's unbelievable. Wow. <laughs> so I, I spoke with the CASA rep uh, down at the conference, yeah. and she said, yeah, you know, once it goes into the tenant's hands, it can only be sold to a nonprofit. To another nonprofit. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, so uh, there are oh. lots of other rules uh, for, for communities. Landlord-tenant law is quite different. Um, yeah. So do you, you want to speak to landlord-tenant law differences at all? Uh that sounds like more of an attorney question. <laughs> <laughs> and an avoidance. There we go. Um, so tell us just a little bit then, um, uh, how are the investment strategies different for investors on manufactured housing communities versus commercial or strictly multifamily? Is there, is there a difference in their strategy there? Uh, difference in strategy is probably, I mean, I'm thinking just because of the recency of it and Senate Bill 608 being passed, uh, I mean, you've got a limitation on annual increases to rents, but upon turnover, so there is no vacancy decontrol, so upon turnover, you can mark tenants to market. Um, A lot of cases, these parks are a couple hundred bucks a month, uh, I mean, a couple hundred bucks under market uh, from their peers. Um, As far as, investment strategies for that. I think it's just understanding what the market is out there um, and understanding uh, what kind of demand level there is for homes within a park that you're looking to possibly acquire. Um, Investment strategies I don't think are too different. I mean, the value add uh, within mobile home parks has typically been, as we talked about, just improving the overall community, building that pride of ownership within uh, your tenant base. Um, I mean, it, it's tough to quantify what kind of value that brings, but it, I think it's it's rea- certainly realized uh, when you decide to go to market. So, I mean, one thing that you see in multifamily, single family, other traditional housing um, structures and investment vehicles is people have a couple different strategies. They might come in and they might, um, like you said, do value add and then basically flip the property. It's a short cycle. I mean, maybe they're going to hold it for 18 months, 24 months, and then they're in and out. Um, and then you have some people who are in it for the long haul and they're basically thinking about the asset for a 10 year hold, maybe longer. Um, I mean, do you see people come in for, with shorter hold strategies with mobile home parks or is this more of like a, you know, we're really buying this here for the long term? Definitely the latter case. So this has historically been more of kind of a core profile asset. And what I mean by that is, uh, low cap rates, um, consistency of income stream um it's i mean when we talked about those family uh outfits before a lot of these assets they don't trade very frequently mm-hmm. um and a lot of them are when they do they are held in perpetuity uh for those groups um i mean there are other groups out there that are looking for that have shorter hold cycles but typically they just aren't as competitive on pricing mm-hmm. um especially when you've got a guy who's looking um, at more of a long-term hold, I think uh, he's willing to pay more for it. So you're saying they're holding for the cash flow. I mean, the, the investors are looking for cash flow on that. You know, um, it's interesting because we talked about due diligence, but the, knowing and understanding the rules 
and understanding what you can and can't do in a manufactured housing community is really part of the due diligence piece. Yeah. Because just like you're talking about with that, uh, with SB 608, if you're capped currently at 9.9% and you're $200 shy times 20 spaces and they're at $400 a month, it's going to take you five years to get where you should have been. And then it's five years later. So you should really be a little bit higher because you didn't have any appreciation or opportunity to increase rent over that time frame. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's a, a pretty big deal when you're, when you're, um, you know, really tracking the numbers and trying to figure out, is this a valuable asset and how long is it going to take me to stabilize it? Which kind of speaks to, you know, this isn't an 18 month flip. This is, it'll take five years before you can get the numbers up where you can get the cap rate you're talking about. Well, I wonder if it's going to degrade the quality of the parks because, you know, one of the challenges is that you guys, most of what you're dealing with outside of the land is infrastructure, right? So a road, you know, wastelines, things like that, supply lines, that, that is expensive infrastructure, right? So if you have aging park stock and you're not able to, to move rents to pay for those capital, you know, improvements, mm-hmm. um, people just might not do them, yeah. right? And so I think that's going to impact the quality of life for, for the residents, which is, you know, unfortunate. No, agreed. Uh, probably result in greater park closures down the road, I'm sure. Uh, so uh, you're right. I, I mean, I think that's a valid concern. Um, that's that's kind of why uh, we're seeing uh, le- more and more park closure. I mean, that's it's a contributing factor to park closures, I sure. think, nationwide. So. Well, one of the things that, uh, you know, the reason I like this asset class personally is because it provides uh, low-income housing to communities who have a pride of ownership. They want to own a portion of what they're, uh, you know, of where they're living. They're contributing to their community. And I think uh, one of the things that is uh, going to be advantageous for us um, in, the, in this space is seeing a lot of these asset classes be stabilized by people who are professional investors because they understand the best way for me to uh, make this property cash flow is to provide an excellent experience for the tenant, right? So they're not slumlords. They're not mm-hmm. letting uh, the houses be demolished or be run down. They're not abandoning their responsibility as a landlord. And it really just uh, brings the value of the park up, but also the quality of life for these individuals. Uh, up. And I, I really like that portion of it. Uh, Alex, thanks for being here today. I really appreciate it. It's been a a great conversation. We're going to transition into some personal questions here, (laughs) and we're going to dig a little bit deeper. Uh, Is there an aha moment that you've had in the past year uh, that changed how you approach some part of your career, your investment strategy, your personal life, something like that? Uh, You know, I was fortunate. I think uh, this didn't happen within the last year, but uh, when I started brokerage, one of the senior brokers had kind of... uh, made a comment to me about just managing your own time uh and for those who are in brokers they understand we're not paid an hourly wage (laughs) so uh what we're working with is our time and uh our market knowledge and the resource and various other resources and i think that aha moment for me was uh trying to budget my time on an hourly rate in my mind uh so calculating like if for example um, if I budget my time at 100 or $200 an hour, uh, the time that I focus um, on or the time that I spend doing things that aren't, uh, that aren't worth that. So if I'm, <laughs> this is just kind of an, uh, an example here, but changing my oil, I'm not at very, I'm not a, 
a big motorhead at all. Uh, so changing my oil probably, yeah, <laughs> shocking. Uh, it took me like an hour to do. Uh, and I mean, thinking that it should have, uh, changing your oil i mean you buy the oil you buy the oil filter you buy the o-ring uh and then uh changing that maybe takes an hour uh 40 bucks uh maybe for everything all in that Mm -hmm. plus your time uh it took me longer than that my first time uh more than the hour it's more than i'm willing to admit to Uh, (laughs) (laughs) a couple youtube videos later (laughs) exactly but like uh the time it took me to do that just made me think that uh, I'm probably better go- serviced going to Jiffy Lube or something like that and getting someone else to take care of that. But being aware of what our time, uh, how we spend our time, I think is the biggest aha moment for me. Nice. Is there a, um, an important ritual that you do every day? Uh, not every day, but uh, I think... Um, it's something that I, I try to do whenever I can is just uh, start my day off with a laugh. So uh, it, uh, I try to find something. Uh, I listen to a lot of Trevor Noah daily podcasts. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I mean, he's got a funny way of presenting the news, right? Sure. Uh, I think he's got his own political biases. But uh, it's, it's nice to be able to start the day off with a smile. Yeah. Cool. Well, another question I have, and I'm always curious about this for other people, um, is how do you measure success? I know how my dad would answer that, uh, and I think uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's got a very binary view of it. Uh, but um, What's that? How does he look at it? <laughs> if you're, you're either... Uh, successful or you're not. <laughs> yeah. Either first or your last kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, but I think um, being a, a new dad or a new um, having this family aspect of it, I mean, happiness definitely is a component towards uh, uh, success. I think measuring success, but it's tough to quantify that. I, sure. mean, I don't know anyone who's oper- who can measure my happiness levels. Uh, <laughs> uh, so... Yeah, it's that's a tough question. I, I'm not sure I have the right answer for it. Okay, we'll let you get out of, you know, of it this way. <laughs> All right, so the next one. Um, if you could have dinner with one person, dead or alive, who would it be? Um, you know, I'm going to have to say that uh, I'd probably like to see where I am in 50 years. So uh, hypothetically dinner with myself. Wow. Oh, interesting. <laughs> That's a good All answer. right. Yeah. That'll be interesting. A little vain, but a good answer. <laughs> I love my own company. I'll do myself, please. All right. So while you're at dinner, are you choosing whiskey or wine? Uh, probably whiskey. Good man. There we go. Good man. And a double since it's you and you. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Well, you know, um, Alex, we want to thank you for coming in and spending some time with us today. Um, how can our audience get hold of you uh, or, you know, view your information? Sure. Um, so probably the best way to contact me uh, is via email or my cell phone. I'll get start with the cell phone, 971-645-2407, or on my email at alex.chang, C-H-E-N-G, at colliers.com. Great. Great. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming in, Alex. Appreciate it. Thank you. 
All right. Well, thank you for joining us today. If you find this show valuable, and we hope you do, we have two favors to ask. The first is please subscribe. And the second is, would you give us a review? The more subscribers and the more reviews we have, the better the show and the better the guests. Until next time, invest in the West. Invest in the West.